come for book reviews? I'm asking you. To the Here We Go podcast? Yeah? Okay, good. You're in the right place. Uh, the last book I read, and not even recently, I have not been reading lately, just been collapsing. That's what happens when you become a new parent. You don't really just go to bed peacefully after brushing your teeth and washing your face and opening up a nice novel. No, you slam into the bed and then you wake up feeling disoriented at the next cry and feed. I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. But the last book I did read was The History of the Improv, which is kind of the history of modern American stand-up comedy. Not the history of all stand-up comedy, but just the history of modern American stand-up comedy. Bud Friedman's invention. It was Bud Friedman's idea to put together this club called The Improvisation, which we now know as The Improv all over the country. But what was it initially? I'm going to get into that, and then I'm just going to rant about a bunch of comics that I like, and then a bunch of comics that I don't understand why they're famous, and probably at some point get into how society is evolving, because we need some deep thoughts. When you listen to this damn podcast, you need to finish and say, whew, I feel a little different. I feel inspired. I feel stimulated. I feel educated. Or maybe I feel like that wasn't a total waste of time. Or maybe I'll text Josh some ideas for the future. Maybe I'll give him some tips. But for today, once again, solo, I tried to book my wife for the podcast. She left. I tried to reach out to a few other people to come on this old podcast. They said, yeah, we're good. No, thanks. But don't you worry. I'm turning this into an interview podcast one day. That's the lingering threat. One day. But back to Bud. So Bud Friedman in New York City, he has an idea. He says, we have a lot of Broadway actors and actresses. We have a lot of performers in this city who need a place to just hang out. They need a place to practice, sing a show tune here or there, put a piano on a stage in front of a brick wall and a sign that says improvisation, serve some pretty good food, some pretty good drinks, and let's see who's going to be drawn to a club like this. So once again, just for Broadway performers, singers, dancers, dramatic actors, to have a place after hours, after the show, to go assemble, hang out, and maybe sing a little bit, play an instrument, gather a crowd. Well, what slowly happened is that they would have comics warm up the crowd, and then more comics heard about this place. Hey, you hear about the improvisation? Yeah, they're letting comics get some stage time. Because back then, if you go way back, comics were basically there to warm you up before the act. They were not the act. They were not the headlining event. Comics will warm you up for a big-time singer. Comics will warm you up for a stripper back in the day at a strip club. But this idea of comics having their own club, it evolved from this idea to give Broadway singers and Broadway actors a little hangout. And then one thing led to another. The word gets out, and all comics are coming to the improv to perform. And there's incredible stories from Andy Kaufman to Jay Leno to Danny Aiello, who was the bouncer at the door. How Liza Minnelli and Judy Garland would sing duets. And this was just a little club. You know, this wasn't like get tickets in advance. This was just show up. And of course, then Bud moves it over to Los Angeles. He opens up the improv in Hollywood and becomes bitter enemies and bitter rivals with Mitzi Shore, who opens the comedy store. Actually, her husband opened the comedy store, Sammy Shore, and then got screwed in the divorce. Could you imagine? Sammy Shore in this divorce had to give up the comedy store, not knowing what it would become. And you give Mitzi Shore all the credit because I guess she was the mastermind behind finding all of these incredible acts and comics and creating the environment to breed comedy all throughout L.A. and beyond. But really, she, when she takes over this club, alpha female, just aggressive mentality. She goes full throttle, onslaught, attack 
when it comes to welcoming Bud Friedman to L.A. So Bud Friedman, Mitzi Shore, bitter enemies. That's not what I'm talking about today, but a large percentage of the book is dedicated to that. And there's a show on Showtime about this. I don't have Showtime, but it talks about the heyday of the comedy store. I think Jim Carrey produces that show. Anyways, it's told this book is written through the voices of the people that experienced it. Primary source narration. It's like that ESPN book and that Saturday Night Live tell-all book. It's told by the people who lived it. So there's not really a writer. There's writers who assembled it and did all the interviews and did all the legwork. But really, it's cool to see that the primary sources, those who lived it, are now telling about it. And one of the young comics they talk about is Freddie Prinze. And most people my age know Freddie Prinze Jr., his son. I'm striking out when it comes to what movies he was in, but Freddie Prince Jr. was a big old heartthrob. He was a big old box office sensation for a few years, and his dad is just a name I knew. Chico and the Man you know, would occasionally be on The Tonight Show, from what I've heard, from what I've read, but if you read the true history of Freddie Prince, he was the hottest name in comedy for a blip, for a moment. And then, of course, as the story goes, he killed himself. But this led me, in the world of what I read, I have to Google, I have to YouTube, this led me to just type in Freddie Prinze on YouTube, and they show one of the earliest HBO specials, maybe even the first HBO comedy special, in front of that brick wall in L.A., it's called Freddie Prinze and Friends, and he opens the show, and it is amazing. I was expecting, you know, something that was probably a little dated, no, it's timeless comedy. Freddie Prinze was a heavyweight, he was a beast back in the day, and he was really young, but really funny. And of course, that song, Only the Good Die Young, comes to mind because in the world of celebrities, Hollywood singers and actors, there is a long list of performers who just gave you a little taste and then they died. Unnatural deaths, whether it's overdose or suicide, it's really sad to think about how many careers are unfinished. But Freddie Prinze, if you could get a chance to watch this on YouTube, just the way he opens the show, Freddie Prinze and Friends, HBO, Home Box Office. What is this new channel? It was Dynamite. And he does voices. He goes through every race and insults every race. Because if it's equal opportunity insulting, then it's okay. Isn't that what we've learned from Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy? When you watch Family Guy and you go, oh, he went after them. And then he went after them. And then he went after them. And then you wonder, how does this guy not get the shit kicked out of him every day in Hollywood? Well, maybe people just go, yeah, but Seth makes fun of everybody. So it's okay. And you got to have an open mind when you go to a comedy club. But that was Freddie Prince. Sad story. But in this book, it really tells about the history of how these comics went from just little open acts to all of a sudden they had a home. And you give comics a home, and then word gets out, people will come. Think about our country right now. What do we need right now? Laughter. Think about how much horseshit is going on, how much bad news you hear about. You're constantly inundated with bad news. So, what has happened? There's a comedy boom going on. Not sure if you realize this, but comedy clubs are doing really well in America. And there's lulls. You know, they talk about the mid-90s to the late-90s, the lulls, and how Dane Cook Helped to relaunch it as he used MySpace to get a lot of people back into comedy. Hey, social media, helping to attract the masses. And of course, now Dane Cook's career is pretty much in the toilet being flushed away. But he did help launch this new renaissance of comedy in his own way. And now what's going on is there's just an endless amount of quality comics around the country. Names you haven't heard of. And I'm going to get into some names later in this podcast. Just because why the fuck not? Why not do my top 10? Hey, Letterman, thanks for that idea. 
So just the last part about this book, The Improv, and you should get it if you want to just slowly read a great historical account of comedy in America. The last little tidbit is about Seinfeld, and they talk about young Jerry Seinfeld. There's nothing else he could have done with his life, which is true. For the greatest comics, that's all they want to do. That's all they're good at. And a lot of them don't even want to be in TV shows or movies. A lot of them say, yeah, the club circuit is where I want to be. And that's Seinfeld, I know. Sounds hypocritical because he had one of the most successful TV shows of all time, but now he's back in the clubs writing new material. And he talked about how comedians should actually be the only ones getting awards at award shows. And of course, if you've ever watched the Oscars, comics never get the awards. When was the last time you saw a comedy nominated for Best Picture? And they don't have the category Best Comedy. I think the only time a comedy won Best Picture was Annie Hall, Woody Allen's hit. But Seinfeld was talking about comedians are actually the only ones who have anything original and funny and interesting to say. They deserve the awards. And his attack was on actors. You know, we watch the actors and we worship, you know, the Brad Pitts and the Johnny Depp's and the Meryl Streep's of the world. And we're fascinated. But really what Seinfeld was saying, and I completely agree, is that we go a little overboard with our praise for actors. There's a lot of good actors. I think the way we describe them as geniuses and artists, true artists, it's annoying, especially when you see them react at their award shows, how important they are. The worst of the worst is recently Big Little Lies, which was a stupid show I never should have watched on HBO. My wife was watching it, and I said, what are you watching? She said, you wouldn't like it, and I sat down, and then I was hooked in one of those shows that I knew I shouldn't be watching, but the plot was gripping, and it was just a bunch of rich white women having issues here in California. But as I was watching award shows, whether it was the Emmys or the Golden Globes, they kept winning awards. Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern, Nicole Kidman. And with every speech, they felt like they were changing the world. And they would pan the camera to the ladies in the audience. And they acted like they were listening to a prophet. Just describe the most profound shit you've ever heard. And it wasn't. You know, they act like because they recited words on a page that were previously written for them. This is basically what Seinfeld's saying, but I'm agreeing. You know, actors, they're playing make-believe. They're doing a little pretend. And then at the award shows, when they take the podium, they act like they've given you the gift, the miraculous gift of life. You're welcome. And that was Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern. Every time they were accepting their awards, because Big Little Lies on HBO was apparently a big old hit, they pretended like they were helping society they were doing a lot of community outreach about domestic violence. Were you really? Or weren't you just putting on makeup and costumes and reciting the words that were written for you? I guess they were trying to use their platform to get the word out about domestic violence. Oh, they are changing the world. And the whole show ends with Lenny Kravitz's daughter just pushing a guy who beats his wife down a flight of stairs and killing him. So there's the message, folks. If you know of a man who is beating his wife and you see him at a school function, push him down the fucking stairs. Kill him. That's the moral. Maybe there's a big moral. Maybe I don't see the depth in that show. But I think I'm going to have a tough time watching award shows from here on out. Seinfeld got in my head. Watch their speeches. Watch how important they believe they are. If you were to actually see a movie being filmed, you would see behind the scenes, the editors, the gaffers, the directors, the cinematographers, the makeup people, all of these people are really making the movie happen. And I don't know why this has become an attack on actors. I am sorry. I have lost my focus. All right, but because I need to get my focus back and continue 
going down the path of discussing comedy today. I'm going to give you my 10 favorites performing today in a particular order from 10 to one. And then right after that, I'm going to give you my 10, not least favorite, but my 10 comics where I don't understand the appeal. I don't get it. They seem to be pretty unfunny, but pretty famous. All right. But first, the ones I like. You tell me if you agree. huh? Number 10, Andrew Santino. You heard of him? Google him. I've seen this guy a few times in San Diego when he was playing the alt scene. And he did recently have a special on Showtime, which is really raunchy, really laugh out loud. He came up to the punchline here in San Francisco. I went with my buddy Rick. Once again, tears of laughter. He's probably 36, 37, redhead. He's been on a few shows. He is on that show I referenced earlier, the Showtime show about the early days of the comedy store. I have the book on my shelf right now, and I can't remember the name. But he plays one of the lead comics, the lead roles. Should I just Google it? All right, I'm going to my phone right now. Andrew Santino, Showtime show. And the name of this show is... I'm Dying Up Here. Okay, there it is. I'm Dying Up Here. I read the whole book. It was okay. It was not as good as the improv book. But Andrew Santino is in the show, so his career is ascending. Incredibly funny guy. Self-deprecating to the core. All right, number nine, David Tell. David Tell, most of you would know from Insomniac, that show on Comedy Central back in the day where he would just go town to town, some college towns, getting drunk with the locals throughout the night. And it worked. Very funny, very raw, gritty. And he's sober now, but he used to be a big drinker, cigarette smoker, New Yorker, former writer on Saturday Night Live, a true joke teller, a guy who would never go to the podium at an awards show and just glorify his accomplishments. But David Tell, amazing, definitely in my top 10. The only live comedy show I've ever been kicked out of was a David Tell show because I was 20 and my friends were 21 and they gave me a sip of their drink and they were monitoring this at the punchline. Punchline's 18 and up, but 21 and up to drink, obviously, and I had a sip of my friend's drink. Just a sip at age 20 and the bartender saw, kicked me out, kicked all of us out right in the middle of David Tell's set. Uh, and that story has nothing to do with this list. All right, number eight, Cedric the Entertainer. If you ever saw the original Kings of Comedy, he steals the show. Bernie Mac is good. Steve Harvey's good, too. Deal Hughley, not really. But Cedric the Entertainer, his breakdance bit, his parking the space shuttle bit, actually anything he does, talking about pop culture or dancing, just a big, doughy, limber comic who I love. Anytime Cedric releases a special, it is laugh out loud. All right, number seven, John Mulaney, uh, arguably star of the worst show that Fox has ever attempted called Mulaney. But if you just take that away from his resume, he was also a writer on Saturday Night Live. He wrote the character Stefan, which Bill Hader used to play on Weekend Update. Yeah, John Mulaney, if you ever have a chance to see him in a club, he is a professional, polished, calculated act. Every joke so well-crafted. Wears a suit and tie. He's probably my age. Just an incredible success story. Brilliant. I think that's the first word you think of when you hear his comedy. You go, oh, that's another joke. That's pretty damn well-written. Uh, number six, Louis C.K. Hey, I'm going to attempt to talk about Louis C.K. without mentioning why he's in the news lately. Just focus on him as a comedian, even though, yes, his career is on the rocks right now. But Louis C.K., he's probably number one on most lists. He's the big dog in the industry right now, and his career was ascending into films and TV. His show, Louis on FX, is awesome. 
his little daughters. Have you ever seen better child actresses than his little daughters on Louie? But his comedy is amazing. Says things where you go, whoa, are you allowed to say that? But that's innovative comedy. When they push the envelope so hard, the envelope falls on the fucking ground and you go, ooh, okay. He's opening doors for new comics. A lot of comics are going to try to sound like Louie for the next 20 years. You'll notice. He's almost like a Richard Pryor type of pioneer. Innovative comic. A revolutionary? I wouldn't go that far, but Louis C.K., my number six. It's funny. He's funny. Usually when I watch his specials, I have two big laughs. That's all. Not three, but two good old-fashioned chuckles. Number five, Sebastian Maniscalco. Did not like him at first. Now I love him. Plan to get his book, which comes out this week. He's getting big. He's blowing up. Used to be a waiter in L.A., just waiting tables, hoping to get some minutes at the comedy store. And, of course, talent is undeniable in comedy. It's not who you know. There's no nepotism in stand-up comedy. The results are right there. People laughing or not. People laugh for Sebastian. Uh, seen him a couple times. Really, really amazing comic. And he had that epiphany throughout his career where he went from just, you know, bits, observational bits about Ross Dress for Less and restaurants to actually talking about his family and things that matter. And I think, as he said, that helped his career launch. Sebastian, number five. Number four, Nick Swartzen for the juvenile side of me. And this is just all fart, dick, Shit jokes, which work. And you're almost embarrassed to laugh as hard as you do at Nick Swartzen. Or I should say, I'm embarrassed to laugh as hard as I do at Nick Swartzen. But he's been in the game since he was a teenager. Minnesota guy, just outstanding. The only problem when I saw him live was that I'm too big of a fan. I knew all of his jokes. Comedy is different than music. When you go to a concert, you want them to sing the hits. Sing the songs I love. Comedy is the exact opposite. Tell me jokes I have never heard. Tell me jokes I don't know. But when I saw Nick Swartzen probably a year ago. It was just all jokes I knew, which made it sound like a weird career. We all know this is what they do. They tell the same jokes at 8 p.m. and then 10.30, and then the next night at 8 p.m. and then 10.30, and then they travel to another city, and then they do the same act at 8 p.m. and then 10.30, and they make good money. At least the headliners do. But in your mind, you want to hope it's different. You want to hope that they switch their material a little more rapidly. And the next time you see them, it's going to be all new. But it's sometimes the same old shit. Swartzen, although I love him, He's number four on this list, this list that you care so much about. He's a little stagnant to rewrite stuff. Number three, the hardest I've ever laughed in a comedy club is at this guy's show, Tommy Davidson. I was at the La Jolla Comedy Store many years ago. I was probably 22 years old. Tommy Davidson, you might know him from In Living Color, but he comes out in a Doug Flutie powder blue Chargers jersey for the 1030 show. So that means he gets on stage at about 1115 after the feature act, and he stays up there till 130 a.m., the entire time, laughter. There was no silence in his show. I've never seen anything like that in my life where he even said, this is unique. This is extraordinary. Even for me, Tommy Davidson, he was humble. He's like, I need a pen. I need to write this shit. He was having one of those moments where he was just on fucking fire. And even as I say Tommy Davidson, some people go, who's that? Who was he? Not only was he on In Living Color, he had a cameo in the second Ace Ventura. But he's been on the Shaquille O'Neal NBA comedy jams. He's definitely been on Def Comedy Jam. He's another comic who's just all over the country at all times. I think he's sober now, but when I saw him, he probably wasn't. That man was a wild man. And I was sitting front row. I got destroyed. Back then, I had a nice puff. I had a nice fro, or a Jew fro, as it's called. And Tommy couldn't get enough of me, just clowning me for a good old-fashioned 20 minutes. He called me Horshack, but I've never been happier to be the butt of jokes. Tommy Davidson just roasting into me 
as I sat front row giggling like an idiot. It was the best experience I've ever had at a club. So he's number three. Number two is Patton Oswalt, who used to be a little better. He's now a little hit or, hit or miss. But Patton Oswalt, you go back to his early shit, it's amazing, unreal. I saw him back in the day at the punchline when he was just, you know, kind of making the name for himself, even right before King of Queens. Now he's a big star. I think now most people know him. He was the voice of the rat in Rat Tattooey, another movie I've never seen. But give me Patton Oswalt, number two, unique style of comedy. And then number one is the most fearless name I want to say in the history of comedy. And that is a crazy comment because you go all the way back to Lenny Bruce through George Carlin, Richard Pryor. It's been a lot of fearless men and women in comedy. But number one is Dave Chappelle. Do I even need to explain why? And it's always been Dave Chappelle. He's always just been on varsity when everybody else is JV. He just shines brighter than the rest. If you've seen his last specials on Netflix, it's to the point where what he says is smarter than any politician out there, smarter than the president, smarter than the vice president, smarter than any other candidates. And he's just observing. But he is a genius. He really is. I know I was just saying we shouldn't call actors geniuses. Dave Chappelle absolutely is. And there's some mystique about him from leaving all that money on the table during the Chappelle show run on Comedy Central, but his jokes are so amazing. And he knows where he's going, but the audience hangs on every word. Yeah, he's the LeBron James today, Chappelle. And he's so big that he doesn't even announce shows previously. Like he was at the Punchline in San Francisco this week, and I got the email that morning. And as I click on the Ticketmaster website, it said sold out. And it was the least surprising thing I've ever seen. Dave Chappelle is big in every city in America and beyond. And he's always threatening to quit. Stop doing that. Stop quitting. You're too good at this. All right, real quick. Here's uh, 10 comics where I don't get it. Uh, number 10, I just lumped in Ray Romano, Drew Carey, Brett Butler, any comedians outside of Seinfeld and Roseanne who had a sitcom in the 90s. I don't get it. Brett Butler, Brett Under Fire. What was it called? Grace Under Fire. Drew Carey. Seems like a nice guy. He's not funny. Ray Romano. I've never even seen Everybody Loves Raymond, but I have seen one of his specials. And it's just PG Vanilla. Vegetable lasagna, not for me. Number nine, Polly Shore. Now that's some nepotism. But he also had a big old movie career, which I liked. Encino Man, pretty good. Son-in-Law, pretty good. Biodome, eh. Uh, in the Army now, not that great. But I've seen them all, and I think I enjoyed them all. Maybe I was young. But Polly Shore still does comedy. And I've seen him like four times live. And I've seen him because it's a big name. You know, he probably still draws crowds because people like the weasel from MTV. He's just not good. I don't get it. He's still doing it, though, and he's still a big name in L.A. Actually, no, he's not. He's not a big name in L.A. He's just a name that's connected to Mitzi Shore in L.A. That's his mom, the owner of the comedy store. Number eight, maybe if I was from Nashville, Tennessee, but Larry the Cable Guy, Jeff Foxworthy, Bill Angvall, this blue comedy collar bullshit, I don't get it. Sunburns, fishing, fast food restaurants, hunting, Sleeveless comedy. Is that kooky? I mean, that is good shit. But Larry the Cable Guy is laughing all the way to the bank. This guy makes cash. And there are a lot of cities in America that love that blue-collar comedy. I just have never smiled. I gave it a chance, too. I've watched it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Number seven is D.L. Hughley. Like I said, the original kings of comedy. You only needed three. Go with Steve Harvey, Cedric, and Bernie Mac. D.L. Hughley is just angry. His bits seem a little incomplete to me. God, how wise am I trying to sound discussing comedy? His bits seem incomplete to me. Number six, Bob Saget. I think the appeal is come see Bob Saget as a comedian 
And you won't believe that this was Danny Tanner from Full House. You won't believe that this was such a G-rated actor in Full House or the host of America's Funniest Home Videos. Because he is dirty. But that's all he is. He's just dirty without the content. So if you love swear words and potty humor, that'll do it for you. Bob Saget. Number five, Daniel Tosh. Loved him at first. Can't stand the show Tosh.0. Seems like the type of guy who needs to get the shit kicked out of him. Number four, Russell Brand. Very famous. Really good and Get Him to the Greek. But his comedy is too rock star for me. Comedians need to be self-deprecating a little bit. He doesn't seem to have that. Uh, number three, Anthony Jeselnik. Not even going to describe why, but if you know who I'm talking about, he's awful. Brutally unfunny. Uh, number two, Kevin Hart. I don't feel like I'm alone with this one. Kevin Hart. His monologues when he hosts Saturday Night Live, really bad. But in his mind, it looks like he thinks he's killing. And I get it if comedians exaggerate or even fabricate from time to time a story here, a story there, whatever gets the laugh. But his entire act seems made up, fabricated, just like lies. Just like you're saying that never happened. Nope, I don't believe it. Hey, Kevin, that didn't happen either. I don't know why I'm so skeptical. I'm so cynical when it comes to Kevin Hart's comedy. I just don't believe any of the shit. All of his stories seem false, made up. He seems like a nice guy, though. How about that? I end with a compliment. But he does seem like a sweet little fella. And number one, pull over your car if you're listening to this as you're driving. Uh, number one, comics, I don't really get their appeal. Aziz Ansari. And once again, like Louis C.K., not even bringing up anything about Aziz Ansari that's in the news right now. That story that he had a date and he forced oral sex or something, subtly forced it, didn't know he was forcing it. See, I can't get into it. It's like that Saturday Night Live skit. Careful, careful. When you discuss these topics, which started with Harvey Weinstein, but now it's a lot of celebrities, you have these topics being discussed at social functions. You just careful. Watch what you're going to say. We all have to be so delicate. These are fragile topics. So Aziz Ansari, yes, a fragile topic, but not when you talk about him as a comedian. How is this guy selling out Madison Square Garden? What am I missing? He makes his voice high. He ends his jokes by making his voice high. When he was Randy and Funny People, that was okay. And some of his specials are okay, but why he has become one of the top three names in comedy, I don't know. And where the hell's Dane Cook? What happened to him? I've heard all the stories. I've heard all the rumors. But how is this guy not still on the circuit? You never see a Dane Cook special anymore. And he was good. He was really funny. Even the people that hate him the most, they have to admit, he was really fucking funny in his heyday. Like 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. Those years, he was the big dog. But he didn't make either list of, of mine. Like, this list matters. All right. Uh, before I end this, here's my thought about society. Here it is. Here's my profound thought about society as we all stumble through this thing called life. When I was, let's say, 9, 10, Domino's Pizza was the first, at least in my neighborhood. Food delivery, pizza delivery, 30 minutes or less. Avoid the noid. And I remember the first time our family ordered Domino's, looking at the clock. They've got 30 fucking minutes or it's free. That's an intense 30 minutes. And I think the guy made it right at the buzzer. They eventually removed that promotion because the drivers were just blowing through stop signs and red lights. But it was amazing to get a pizza delivered to your home. It was the best treat. It was the best holiday. It was better than any gift. A Domino's pizza to your door. And now it doesn't matter. Food delivery, we don't appreciate it anymore. Not only does every pizzeria deliver, but there are a ton of services that deliver from every restaurant in your neighborhood. The one I use, caviar, they'll bring you sushi right to your door. Indian food, what do you need? Chicken tikka masala, it's at your door in 40 minutes. Anything, do I appreciate this anymore? Of course not. 
So something evolves from when it's brand new and it changes society and it's interesting and it's exciting and then it becomes the norm. It becomes mainstream. It's accepted. And then it's just how life is. You can order things to your door. And what has that gone into? Clothes. People just go to Amazon. You don't have to go to the mall anymore. Everything could just show up right at your door. Everything. Books. Forget bookstores. People just order the book right to their door. Amazon owns the world. Groceries. You don't need to go to the grocery store. Someone will shop for you. Just go right to your door. Electronics. You get my point. My wife even bought her car through a service, an online service, Carlipso, that found the car in Florida and shipped it out here. That's how my wife got her car. It sounded weird to me. I thought, of course you have to go to a local lot. Nope, not at all. So the immediacy of what we consume, what we order, it just comes straight to our door. Is this the reason there's more social anxiety? Because we're not forced to go into as many social situations as we used to be. Think about right now your group of friends or your family. How many people do you know that has, has social anxiety? Quite a few. Quite a few. It's not just me who struggles with small talk. I think humans are now less socialized. Sure, we're communicating through our podcasts and through our text messages and through email, but what about face-to-face, just being around strangers at the mall to buy things less and less to the point where, who knows, in 100 years, why would we have malls? Why would we have stores? Everything just comes straight to your door. And it brings up this concept of when you initially appreciate something that's new, it dissipates so quickly. Hopefully that's not a microcosm for relationships and life because it would be nice if appreciation just lasted forever. But music right now, anybody could listen to any song they want at any time. Spotify, SoundCloud, you just tap the artist, tap the band, tap the song, you listen to it. Back in the day, you had to wait for the radio or you would go to Tower Records, Musicland to buy the tape and you'd have to save up a lot of money, buy the tape, fast forward to the one or two songs on the album that you liked or buy the single. And then compact discs. So you had to buy the music, buy the artist. Now it's just pick and choose the songs you like. So most people nowadays, most young people, they don't say, I love this album. They love a couple of songs, put it on your playlist, put it on a mix. You don't have to wait by your radio with your cassette to press record to make your own mixtape. That's a thing of the past. So the immediacy of getting everything you want, it's always right there. And it's cool. If we're appreciating it, it's really cool. I have Spotify, I like it, it's cool. But soon I'm not going to appreciate it. Soon it's just going to be how life is. Think about your high-def TV, the first time you got your high-def TV. Now, we don't just call them high-def TVs. We just say, my TV. I think it was 2009, 2010 for me. Went to Best Buy. The guy who sold me the TV said, you know, this is like a TV of the year. That was his pitch. I mean, I bought the TV, but is there an award show for TV of the year? I don't even know what he was referring to, what his source was. He was like, yeah, you take a look at this TV. That's TV of the year. And I said, of course it is. Bought the TV, changed my life, the way I got to watch sports, the way I got to watch movies, and now when I watch TV, I don't appreciate that shit anymore. It's almost weird to think about back in the day, my memories of watching sports in the 80s and 90s, it's not like grainy, it's not standard def, these are crystal clear memories. As I was watching the TV, I never thought, huh, if only there was high def. But now if you go back and you watch Hardwood Classics, a Warriors game from 1991, it looks awful. Our brains have evolved to only accept the newest and the best. Go back to the 1950s for a moment. The people that were alive from the transition from color TV or from black and white TV to color TV, it probably blew their fucking minds at first. And then over time, it was just how TV looked. It's all in color. That's a reflection of society today. I don't even think I have the intelligence right now or the mental energy to put a bow on that one. Let's just say from black and white to color TV. Yeah, that's a reflection of society today. And let me pretend that that sounds so smart and just leave you with that. But I appreciate you listening. 
I really do. I promise to have a co-host in here next time. I don't know who it'll be. Maybe my 12-year-old beagle. Maybe my wife. Maybe a coworker. Maybe a friend. Maybe a stranger. Maybe the Brazilian guy that lives below me who always offers incredible food. Actually, my current living situation is a pretty good story. I'll get to that on the next podcast. All right, episode four in the books. I'll talk to you later.